Well, go ahead and grab a seat. It is really good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Alistair. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. Uh, and it would be a joy to meet you after the service, especially if you're new, just to put a name to the face. Uh, we have reached the end of the line, uh, at least for now. Uh, this will be the last sermon in our series, Brick and Mortar. Uh, we've been examining the foundations of our faith. We looked at the gospel in detail, and we've looked at what it means to be the church in detail. And in the fall, we'll actually resume this series and look at another important part of our foundation, the mission of God, that God has sent us into the world to pursue what is good. Uh, for today, I want to look at one more brick in this series, and the brick is discipleship, because ultimately that is what this series is all about. As people of the gospel, we are disciples. Uh, the passage just read to us, Matthew 18, verses 16 through 20, it's commonly called the Great Commission, and I have so much to say about it, so I'm just going to stop the introduction and tell you the three points and just get to it. So I want to reframe discipleship, I want to root it in how messy life is on earth, and I also want to keep it within the promise. So discipleship, the mess, and the promise. If you have a Bible, open it up uh, to Matthew 28. I just want to read this passage one more time. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's begin with our first point, reframing discipleship. Uh, when it comes to discipleship, there can be some baggage, right? Depending on your background, this passage, the Great Commission, is often used like the great guilt trip. Essentially, someone will say to you, why aren't you making disciples? You should be out there, every single one of you, making disciples, and if you're not, you're not being faithful to Jesus, and it can feel like we're being forced to wear the wrong shoe size, and it's caused us some blisters. Is that anyone's experience and background? On the other hand, one author says that the functional Great Commission in North America has become this, go into the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. Now, I have to admit, as a pastor, that sounds pretty good. But it reduces the breadth and the goodness of this passage into the organizational aspirations of a particular local church. And of course, like worship attenders, small groups, service teams, these things matter. And of course, I'm going to add that caveat. But they're related to discipleship, but they're not the crux of this command. And so whatever experience you bring to this passage, I want to just try to reframe it a bit. And the first thing I want to do is remember that discipleship is a journey. It is a journey of following Jesus. Matthew writes, the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And so disciple is this, discipleship is this journey of being called by Jesus, to be with Jesus, for Jesus. Discipleship is to Jesus, it's to be with Jesus, it's for Jesus. This is discipleship. In the ancient world, the disciple-rabbi relationship was um, best symbolized by sitting at the feet of your rabbi. 
You would learn their ways, but then you would also stay with them. You would do life with them. You would watch them teach, but also live out their teaching. And an ancient collection of Jewish writings called the Mishnah actually describes this as being covered in the dust of your rabbi, that the life and teachings of your rabbi would actually rub off on you. You would wear it from following them so closely. So discipleship is a journey of following Jesus. A disciple is a lifelong learner and apprentice of Jesus and his ways. A disciple is someone who is eager to wear the dust of Jesus our Lord. And this means as disciples then, on this journey, we journey under the authority of Jesus. Because Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So disciples learn to walk under Jesus, under his heart and mind and soul and strength. They learn to take his perspective, to come under his way and join him on his path. And as disciples then, we're working to deconstruct all the things we project onto Jesus that are not true of him. As disciples, we're also working to deconstruct all of the cultural baggage that often gets projected onto Jesus but is not of him. As disciples, our primary goal is to learn to see see Jesus ever more clearly as we also see the stand in front of us. But we're trying to see Jesus. And we do this by coming under his word and listening to the global witness of his church. Because no one culture, no one denomination, no single Christian can see Jesus clearly. We need an intercultural witness of the Lord's goodness. And thanks be to God, we actually have it. I understand that the authority piece can put us back on our heels. You don't want to be told what to do, and so you might automatically feel defensive when I say, come under the authority of Jesus. Uh, This sticker says, cultivate curiosity. So much universe, so little time. I just love that, and it reminds me of my first pastor, Kyle, and a quality about him that I really loved. Uh, You know, I joined this little house church. It was the first church I ever joined, and we would study scripture and talk about Jesus, and inevitably, Kyle would ask, What would it look like if we actually did what Jesus says here? And since I was a new Christian at the time, uh, I often wasn't sure how to answer the question. But over time, I began to look forward to this question because Kyle was inviting curiosity and even creativity. He wanted me and the others gathering together to imagine what would it take to follow Jesus in this way, to think about our own lives And to actually put it into practice. He wanted us to be curious about the text moving from the page into our heart and in our feet and out in our lives. Holy curiosity. And so if the authority of Jesus puts you back on your heels, I want to invite holy curiosity. Anytime you come across something in scripture, anytime you come across something Jesus says, that you're like, I'm not so sure about that. Just ask the question, well, what would it look like? What would it look like? If we actually did what Jesus says, take this posture of holy curiosity. Because Jesus, he tells his disciples, he tells us, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And his authority, he says this to us, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples 
of all nations. Everyone, everywhere deserves an opportunity to become a disciple. And in fact, that there is a group of people in Vancouver right now that are disciples of Jesus Christ. It's because a bunch of apostles in Jerusalem lived out this command imperfectly so, and the gospel continues to spread to the ends of the earth. So this call to make disciples, it's immense, but it's also diverse. Uh, This magazine title and subtitle reads, uh, Historian Ahead of His Time, Andrew Walls may be the most important person you didn't know, and just in case you're skeptical about needing to know yet another white dude who's a scholar, hear me out, please. Andrew Walls, reminded everyone that making disciples of all the nations isn't just about the scope. It isn't just about including more and more people. Walls was a missionary in Africa for most of his life and learned much from scholars in Africa. And he argues that this call to make disciples is as much about the culture of the nation as well. That the gospel goes from place to place. And when it does, the gospel always comes in another cultural form. But the gospel must indigenize. The gospel must arrive different, but then learn what it means to be a gospel in that particular place. It must become a unique expression adapted and expressed through all that is fair and good and beautiful about the new culture and nation and the many cultures within that nation. That the call to make disciples of all nations then is that all nations would receive the gospel, ingest the gospel, and express the gospel in their distinct and particular way. And so as the gospel takes root in people within their culture, as it adapts into a new expression, it will never be fully at home within the nation either. Because that nation never fully owns the gospel. The gospel is the Lord's. And the Lord is going to express it through that culture in a way that gives him Glory, And so we have a pilgrim faith, and it says, this world, even our own culture, it's never our home. But we also get a humility then. Our culture, our way of expressing the gospel is not the one definitive way of how the gospel takes root and indigenizes within a nation. That's why Andrew Walls is such an important scholar. And so here's what I want us to see, because this is what Andrew Walls wanted us to see making disciples of all nations, he's not saying that all nations must be colonized in uniform. He's saying that Jesus is comfortable in all skin, in all cultures, revealing himself in the breadth of human diversity. Every single human on this planet is made in the image of God across every culture and race and religion and creed. And only as the nations are discipled will we begin to see Jesus more and more clearly. Because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell among us, not just among Anglicans, but among the nations expressing who Christ is in a diversity we can't imagine. Discipleship is a journey, a journey of going to Jesus, to be with Jesus, for Jesus, commence to go and make disciples of all nations. But the controlling verb of this whole passage is make disciples. Make disciples. And then Jesus tells us two things we can do to make disciples. You baptize them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them to observe all I've commanded you. And so disciples go and they make disciples and they 
baptize, and they teach. And today's Trinity Sunday, so I chose this passage because it helps us reflect on the Trinity. You see, what I love about this is not just that disciples are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although that's true. It's into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So while this is about water baptism, it's also more. And this statement can totally change your mind about what discipleship is. Because discipleship, then, is a journey into the very life of the Trinity. And there's the connection to Peter that I couldn't quite trace. It is baptism into the divine nature, sharing in God's life and power. This is what discipleship is. And the Trinity is a core, non-negotiable doctrine of the Christian faith. But it's also a difficult one to understand, isn't it? God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This diagram is a classic way of explaining it. We see there that each of the three persons of the Trinity are equal. Each person is fully and truly God. Not three gods, but one unified God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father and the Son. In some ways, we can only talk about the Trinity by what the Trinity is not. It is this great divine mystery that God is... Three persons, one God. If you want to learn more about the Trinity, two really simple books could help you. Uh, Daryl Johnson's Experiencing the Trinity or Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. And those books can lay the foundation for you then to read maybe some deeper dive books that show you how different nations have uh, dwelt with this doctrine of the Trinity. I just couldn't find an easy introduction into those textbooks. But here's the thing. This three-in-one God is best understood in one simple statement by the Apostle John in his letter. God is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love. St. Augustine riffed on this idea, and he said, God is at once the lover, the beloved, and the love itself. The lover, the beloved, and the love itself And so what that means for us is that we are baptized into this reality of eternal love, this active love that is happening in the three persons of the Trinity, the lover, the beloved, and the love itself, draws us into this eternal current of love and invites us to be co-lovers with God, to experience the love of God so that we join in the love of God, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love even ourselves. And this is what the teaching part is all about in making disciples. Disciples, yes, they're taught to obey all that Jesus commanded. Why? Well, Jesus has authority over all things, including us. But as we learn to obey Jesus, this includes, of course, learning to put all of his instructions in the Gospels and all the instructions in the New Testament letters into practice. But this also means that we listen to him when he says, Look, all the laws of God, all the commands, everything I'm about, it can be summarized like this. Love God and love your neighbor. This is what we're teaching people to do as disciples, to love God and to love neighbor. Every instruction in the scriptures has to be traced back to that. And if it can't be, then it's probably a misinterpretation. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, a new commandment I give you, That you love one another just as I've loved you. You're to love one another. We are baptized into this love that is God. 
and taught to then live in this way of love. And so obedience to the teachings of Jesus is never, is never anything other than obedience to the ways of God's love in Christ. The love of God that comes to dwell in us through the power of his spirit. So discipleship, it is a journey of being called to Jesus, to be with Jesus, commenced to go and make disciples of all nations, drawing people into the love that is the Trinity and teaching them to walk in the ways of God's love in Christ. Discipleship sounds pretty good when you put it that way, maybe a little long, but good. But like any journey, discipleship has twists and turns, ebbs and flows. It includes unexpected and surprising difficulties and even glories and moments of joy. And so having reframed discipleship, I want to move to our second point, the mess. Because we have to keep our feet on the ground of the earth, and the ground of the earth is often messy. There's a harrowing number in our passage. Did you see it? Eleven. The eleven disciples. Formerly twelve, but now eleven. A tight group of friends that followed Jesus for three years together. Now eleven. No more Judas. And we have to remember that everything Judas did, the actions they took, they, that he took, they, they happened in this tight knit group of friends, and it would have been devastating. Can you imagine the, the sickening, sinking feeling that would have washed over Jesus' disciples when they saw Judas betray Jesus to the authorities with a kiss? But Judas didn't just betray Jesus, did he? He betrayed his friends as well. And shortly after Judas felt remorse over what he did, he returns the money to the religious leaders who conspired with him and then Judas hangs himself, and Judas dies by suicide. I mean, the betrayal would have been devastating enough for Judas's life to end this way. You know, no resolution, no reconciliation, just a perpetually unresolved end. And so when the disciples heard the news, grief would have struck them despite everything that happened the night before, because all that Judas did, even the betrayal within that, remained a friend. It's complicated like that, isn't it? Judas killed himself? How, how do you live with that as a disciple? And this would have only compounded upon what the disciples were already feeling, guilt for the own ways that maybe they betrayed Jesus as he went to the cross. And the sorrow and the grief of seeing him crucified and buried. And so all the weight of feeling betrayed, the shock of grief in mind, Matthew writes now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee. I mean, the context makes that statement sound a whole lot different, doesn't it? We're so used to this being like a pep rally text, and we, we gloss over that it comes in a very difficult moment. Everything that's transpired, all the events that would have turned their world upside down, the suicide of Judas, the betrayal of Jesus, the crucifixion of him, and now these strange accounts that he is alive. What I love about it is the disciples still go to the mountain. Because disciples want to be with their rabbi. Disciples keep moving in the direction of Jesus, even when life is confusing and overwhelming and doesn't make sense. And there they find them, and this is where they receive the Great Commission, go and make disciples. 
Not when life is tidy or put together or in order or going well, but when life is hurting and broken and complicated and confusing. This is the context of their commission. And it permanently reminds them and it reminds us that discipleship must take place in the real world, the mess of the earth, because this is the only place it can take place. And before Jesus commissions them, there's one other thing we should look at. Matthew tells us that upon seeing Jesus, some disciples worshipped and some disciples doubted. Some doubted. And the word for doubt, it's an interesting one. It only occurs one other time uh, in the New Testament. So this isn't just like an intellectual doubt. It's a different kind of a doubt. The issue isn't, oh, are my eyes actually seeing this? Something else is happening. The word for doubt is the same word used when Peter tries to walk on water and starts to sink, and Jesus asks him, why did you doubt? Same word. And so this doubt is about hesitancy. This doubt is about practical uncertainty. Now, Peter, he saw Jesus walking on the water. He saw the possibility of walking on water, and for a moment, he gets out there and walks on water with Jesus. But then Peter sees the waves, and he knew the human probability of sinking. And so he started to sink. Doubt said to Peter, I see the possibility, but know the probability. I see the possibility, but I know the probability. Some of the disciples who arrive at this mountain in Galilee, they see Jesus and they doubt. This uncertainty grips them, this hesitancy, because they see the risen Lord with their own eyes. A new reality is before them, but they also know the tragedy of the past few days. Suicide and betrayal and crucifixion. How do these things fit together? They weren't so sure. Doubt says, I see the possibility of resurrection, but I know the probability of tragedy. And so the truth is something like this. You can have sincere faith in Jesus, but for a time you're not among those who worship. You're among those who doubt. And the doubt isn't a moral indictment or shortcoming. Rather, it can be a gift on the path of discipleship. Because the mess, whatever has happened or is happening to you or around you, it's impacting how you see Jesus in the moment. And doubt is a gift because it can be the beginning of facing the mess so that you can see Jesus within the mess with you. So that the mess doesn't ultimately shape how you see Jesus, but Jesus shapes how you experience the mess. Before I planted St. Peter's Fireside, uh, back in 2012 now, hard to believe, I was on staff at a large church in Orlando, Florida for a few years, and the lead pastor, Isaac, was in many ways a spiritual mentor and friend. Uh, he baptized me. Uh, he didn't know, but it was actually like my third baptism, but he baptized me. There's a story there. Don't get baptized three times, but he baptized me. Uh, Oh, you need to know the backstory now. So I didn't know I was baptized as an infant because my parents didn't find it a relevant fact to ever communicate to me. And then when I became a Christian, I read about baptized, so baptism, so I baptized myself in my own bathtub, which I don't recommend. And so then I got baptized. But if I'd known I was baptized as an infant, I wouldn't have done it, but I still wouldn't have counted the bathtub. Good? <laughs> and now that's in recorded history. <laughs> Isaac baptized me. He, he officiated... Uh, my wedding to, to my wonderful wife, um, 
He's the one who helped me discern my calling into ministry. He's the one who convinced me uh, and encouraged me to go to seminary. He's the one who gave me my first job in ministry. He taught me how to preach. He's the one who commissioned me to move back uh, to church plant and in front of thousands of people who would say, I would follow Alistair. And those words stuck with me. Uh, the prayer before I pray, uh, that I pray before every sermon, you know, take your word, apply it to our minds, hearts, feet. That's Isaac's prayer. And when Julia and I moved to Vancouver within the first year of church planting, I got a call. Alistair Isaacs resigned, moral failure. He's been having an affair for the past 18 months. And I, I was rattled. But I continued on because um, I could tell myself, like, yeah, these things happen. Like, people are broken. It's, it's, it's upsetting. It's, it's, but it's okay. Like, we'll move forward. We'll get through this. And a year later, just after we launched our Sunday services, about one month after our Sunday services, I got a text. And first off, don't ever text this to someone. Uh, Alistair, Isaac committed suicide. I went numb. I mean, still talking about it hurts. And my faith in Jesus, it remained intact. I mean, the tragedy, though, of suicide, it dislodged me. You know, doubt said, I know the power of resurrection, but I don't know how to reconcile it with how Isaac died. So why am I bringing this up? First, we have to talk about suicide. It's in the scriptures. It devastated the first followers of Jesus. It's devastated me and others I know too. And so if you've been having thoughts of suicide or suicidal ideation, I want you to know you don't have to face the struggle alone. You don't need to hide. You don't need to be ashamed. You matter, and the world is better with you. We need you. And if you've thought about harming yourself, please don't. Please reach out to someone. Uh, you can always call the Suicide Prevention Service uh, at this number, 833-456-4566. And I'm bringing this up because my path of discipleship includes this tragedy. And doubt was born from the grief and tragedy of Isaac's death. And as I said, there's nothing inherently wrong with this kind of doubt, but the risk of doubt, especially doubt induced by tragedy, grief, or trauma, is that the temptation is to turn in on yourself. And that's what I did for a while. Doubt, it didn't build up my faith and it didn't erode my belief. Instead, it just slowly chipped away at how I lived out my faith. And this happened because rather than facing my doubt and walking with it on the journey of discipleship, I tried to ignore it and hope that it would just go away didn't. And so six months later, I almost burnt out, and our young leadership team said, Alistair, you need to take a month off. And so I did, because my life only got messier. And ultimately, I took that month off, and it didn't fix everything, but I had to face what was going on in my heart and my soul, but not face it alone. I actually had to face my doubt with others and learn to bring it on the path of discipleship with Jesus, to bring this incongruity that doubt pointed out, that Jesus can save and transform lives, but Christians still die by suicide. I just had to bring that with me. 
to press into the doubt with others as I kept following Jesus. And this is what we do. We admit to not knowing how to reconcile what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. And you name that they don't add up, but nevertheless, you see the risen Lord inviting you to follow him and to bring your doubt along for the journey. You know, I find it interesting that in our passage, neither the worship nor the doubt is addressed by Jesus. Matthew just points it out. Jesus says nothing about it. They both exist side by side. And then the commission comes to both, to those who worship and to those who doubt. In other words, doubt does not disqualify someone from discipleship. It's actually part of the process. So doubt is not always a lack of faith, but rather it's actually a part of the experience of faith. And Jesus sees this doubt in his, his 11, and some of them, he just has come along. doesn't try to fix it doesn't try to push it away. He just invites it to come forward with them. And as we name our doubt, as we allow it room, we slowly discover that Jesus is with us even in our doubt. And this teaches us that we can worship him even with doubt. So this, I bring all of this up to remind us that life is messy and that discipleship always takes place in the mess. It meets us in a very real world and that this calling to go and make disciples does not come to 12, but to 11. Some who were in the throes of grief and some who were really struggling with doubt. And I want to encourage you that if your own journey as a disciple has been messy or a struggle, if you've faced tragedies or traumas, and if you have doubts that are causing you to limp along the path of Jesus, it's not always because something is wrong with your faith. It's usually just the fact that discipleship takes place on the earth in So having reframed discipleship, kept it in the mess, friends, I also want to keep it within the promise. I want to keep discipleship within the promise. The road of discipleship, it's not smoothly paved, but it does come with a promise. As Jesus stands among his broken-hearted, confused followers, he commences them to make disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Commences them, and then he says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. In a way we may not comprehend, Jesus truly has authority over all things, even when our lives seem to be falling apart, falling apart, even when tragedy strikes. And the promise, even if we can't see it, is that Jesus really is with us. Behold, I'm with you always, always in grief, in loss, in tragedy, in pain, in heartache, in doubt. Even on a run on the seawall. I was running on, uh, I don't know, Friday. Friday and um, I ran past this woman sitting on a bench and she was wearing this, this sweater with like really big rainbow letters. And it said, somewhere, someone is thinking about you. And as I ran by, I thought, that's probably not true. And then I thought, then I thought, my name is engraved in the palm of God's hand. And like, I know that's cheesy. Like, God was humbling me in that moment. And I wanted to run back and, like, take a photo of her sweater. But then I realized in that moment, that's not the person she wants thinking of her somewhere. 
Someone somewhere is thinking about you, and that someone is Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. And behold, your name is engraved on his palms, and he loves you with an unbridled, eternal love, and he is with you always in everything, even grief, even loss. There is never a sometimes reality with Jesus. Even when you run away from him, he pursues you. Even in the depths he is found, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Somewhere, someone is thinking about you. At the right hand of God, Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am with you always. 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 The journey of discipleship means following Jesus, walking with him inhabiting him, abiding in and with him. And it depends in trusting on him day in, day out. And so we're called to him for him. This is discipleship. It's only possible because he's with us always. And I believe we're all invited into this commencement. I really do. But it doesn't have to be a great guilt trip. And it doesn't have to be reduced to the organizational goals of the church. Um, here's what I think. I think we need to ask, what would it look like if we did what Jesus says? God is a kingmaker. He's made Jesus Christ our king. He's bestowed all authority on him. Jesus has authority over all things. And what if he said to us as a church, I'm with you. And my words, they're on your lips, and they're even in your heart. But they're not yet in your feet. Go and make disciples. What would it look like if we did what Jesus says? Go and make disciples. Dallas Willard uh, once said, it's almost universally conceded today that you can be a Christian without being a disciple. That's so tragic. There's no such thing as a Christian that is not a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. So the first what if for us is we all need to be disciples. We need to be baptized into this journey into the love of the triune God. And if you're still figuring that out, it's fair to say maybe you're not yet ready to make a disciple but not so fast, because I knew a church planter in the West End who met with an atheist on a regular basis to try to teach her about Jesus because she was interested about it. And after that meeting, after every single meeting, she would go on a walk with another friend of hers and complain about everything Dennis said to her. And you know what happened? She accidentally made a Christian out of her friend. <laughs> Making disciples is a funny thing, isn't it? But maybe you're not ready to share your faith quite yet because you're on that journey and, or, or to make disciples that's okay. But if you need to be discipled, here's my ask. Ask someone to walk alongside you because you can't do it alone. Just say, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. Would you walk alongside me on this journey? But I also want to say, we're never going to get to this point where we're totally ready to make disciples. That's what our passage wants us to see. Like, part of me wants to be like, hey, Jesus, maybe you should have waited a little bit, given them a little more time to grieve before sending them out to go and do your work. We're never going to be totally prepared to make disciples. There's always going to be something going on in the world or in our lives where we think, well, maybe not quite yet. 
But here's the thing. The possibility of making disciples is not contingent on the probability of us not being ready. The possibility of making disciples is based on the probability of the authority of Jesus who sends us to do the work and makes the promise to be with us in that good work. And so let's say you're like, all right, like, what if? What if we did what Jesus has to say here? What would it look like? And I just want to ask some questions around that. Like, what if? It doesn't mean you have to be an answer book. What if it doesn't require reading a stack of books? What if it doesn't require going to seminary? Like, what if, like Jesus, it just means you're with people on the journey? That discipleship is more about coming alongside alongside one another and helping one another walk in the ways of Christ's love in this messy world. What would it look like for you to just be more intentional in being a discipleship with other people? Like, what if it looks like being intentional in walking with a friend or with a coworker, or a colleague or a spouse or your children or someone who's curious about faith? What if it's not coming top down and being like, I know everything about Jesus, but I'm alongside of, hey, I'm on this journey toward Jesus and I'd love for that to be a part of our relationship if you're interested in What would it look like for us to go forward two by two? Because Jesus sends people out together. What would it look like for you to meet with a group of three or four and to just be intentional? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus together? And what if discipleship isn't so linear? What if it's not always this path, you know, always upward to the right? Like what if discipleship means walking along someone as they try to figure out, is Jesus really who he said he was? Because that's what's going on in the Gospels, if you pay attention. Disciples are disciples before they're converted. What if it's just journeying along someone? What if it's journeying along someone as they actually go back and retrace their steps and say, something's not adding up along the way. I need to deconstruct something along here. Just what if it's not linear? What if it is messy because discipleship takes place in a messy world? And what if? Discipleship means walking along someone who is very different than you, who doesn't come from your same culture or heritage or background, who sees and experiences the world in a very different way than you. And what if discipleship is coming alongside one another and journeying toward Jesus and seeing him reveal himself in all his beauty through your differences as you bring them to him and one another? What if... Making disciples means paying attention to where the world is hurting and not going in with an explanation for the suffering or the tragedy, but not modeling the witness of Jesus. What if it's just being present in the pain of one another, sitting and grieving and sometimes walking forward through that? What if you simply try and make a disciple? What if you just try? What would it look like in your life? Who would you journey with? How would you take all the pressure off and actually let it be fun? Because it is. It's hard. It's messy. But it's fun. You're journeying into eternal love. And you're learning how to walk in the ways of God's love in Christ. It takes intentionality. That's what I want to say. You're not going to accidentally start making disciples. So if you need to be discipled, ask someone. If you want to disciple someone, ask them. And talk about it. 
and be curious. Model that holy curiosity. What would it look like for us to try to make disciples of one another and journey together in this? Jesus, he calls us to himself to send us. Living into his authority and presence comes with this task. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And so the Christian life is this coming to Jesus and being sent out on his behalf to invite people into the love that is God so they can walk in the path of love that leads to God. And the journey takes place within the promise, in this messy world, Jesus is with us always. Always, because somewhere, someone is thinking about you. So let's pray.